Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. Funky Chester is drummer Lynn Williams, who's played with Albert McClinton, The Wallflowers, and The Muscle Shoals All-Stars. Paul Osola, who's been a member of Levon Helms Band and their Saturday Night Live Band, and myself on guitar. Joe Funderburg recorded and mixed the track. Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. We're taping this episode at Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville and today's guest is my good friend, music impresario John Tiven. John Tiven has been a record producer, songwriter, musician, sometime artist and music journalist. John was born in Connecticut and lived in New York City for a long time before moving to Nashville about a dozen years ago. He's worked with B.B. King, Wilson Pickett, Frank Black, Steve Cropper, Don Covey, Bobby Womack, P.F. Sloan, Little Milton and Hubert Sumlin, just to name a few, or at least a few of my favorites. His songs have been recorded by Huey Lewis and the News, B.B. King, Irma Thomas, Little Milton, Buddy Guy, Jeff Healy, and Robert Cray. John and I first met at the Pareto Soul Festival in Italy in 2007, and he was the first person in Nashville who invited me to his home to co-write a song with him. I'm glad to welcome him as my guest in the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Andreas. So nice to see you. Well, great to see you, and thanks for coming by. Well, thanks for having me here as your second guest on the podcast. I hope uh, I hope there's many more to come. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Let's just uh, jump right in and start at the beginning. How did you discover your love for music? Well, my parents were big music fanatics always, so there was music in the house, which was great for me. And I remember playing piano in my... Uh, in my basement with my mom by my side when I was about four years old. I was I played piano for a couple of years, and then I wanted to switch to another instrument because I thought piano was, was sort of boring. And I wanted to switch to guitar, but my parents sort of convinced me that I should go to saxophone, which was fine for a couple of years. And then in uh, 1970, when I was 15 years old, I was playing baseball, and I was the catcher, and uh, I wasn't wearing a mask. A bat came back, and 21 stitches later, I was a guitar player. I wasn't really able to play saxophone for about 30 years, but when I moved to Nashville in 2002, I uh, decided I was going to attack the saxophone once again, so I bought a tenor, and uh, I've really fallen in love with playing the the saxophone, so it's it's been great for me to come back to that. But uh, it's been a long long journey and there have been a lot of other instruments in between all right so in your early teens you also started writing about music how did that come about i started uh initially writing for a science fiction fanzine called grand falloon i wrote a review of 2001 a space odyssey the film which i saw on one of my first visits to new york and i I love the film, of course, and I, I wrote for this fanzine, and I thought, well, there need to be rock fanzines because people of my generation and people who aren't really that professional aren't writing about music. So 
I started my own magazine, I believe the next year, 1967, uh, called it the New Haven Rock Press, and we put out five issues a year for about five years, and uh, I got to interview a lot of artists, and I got to meet people in the music industry and sort of educate myself as to what not only the music industry was all about, but what, what the life of people who lived in music and worked in music was really like. And that was very helpful to me because I got to figure out what I wanted to do at a very early age because I got to see people who were doing it for real. All right. You also put together a rock critic conference in, in Memphis. How did that come about? Well, I didn't so much put it together. I, I helped... The guys who, who really put it together were the guys at, at Ardent Records. There was a guy named John King was the main guy. And they got Stax Records to fund the whole thing. So I helped them organize it to an extent. And I, I was instrumental, I guess, in getting the list of all the, the different critics who, uh, who had come to the festival. And I also, once we were there, there was a group that Ardent had called Big Star that had broken up that I was very fond of and Alex Chilton was doing a, a solo record and I convinced him that it might be wise to uh, perform as Big Star at this particular event because we had all like two, three hundred critics there at the time and it would be a great opportunity for him to you know, launch whatever his next project was at which point he, uh, he decided he'd go into rehearsal quickly and he and Jody and Andy I guess got Big Star back up on its feet and and later turned the recordings he had started as a solo project into a group project and that became the Radio City record. So um, that was pretty great that I was able to get that in motion there. That was probably the you know one of the best things that came out of that that whole convention. Yeah, and how did you transition from writing about music to a to be more hands-on involved in creating music. Well, I had I had been doing demos in uh, my basement and my friend's basement for some time since since they came out with the TAC four-track machines. We were able to make uh, recordings that were fairly good simulations of a full rock band with just two of us. And there was I had a partner, Doug Snyder, who played everything that I didn't play and. Uh, didn't play guitar quite as well as a lead player as I did, so I, I added in. He could play drums and bass really well in addition to playing rhythm guitar. So we were a good combination. Our songs were a little obscure, but we, we sort of saw it through, and we were, we were doing this. We almost got signed to, uh, well, first off, Andrew Oldham paid for us to go into the studio, and we did that, and we got Jody Stevens to play drums with us. That was in 1973 or 74, and then, I think 73, and then uh, later that year, we got Mercury Records introduced uh, to our music, and they, they really liked it, and they wanted to put us in the studio, and the guy who... Uh, was interested was a guy named Paul Nelson who was a music critic and r the week before we were set to go into the studio to make our recording for them he got fired because they considered the New York Dolls to be a failure and they had to fire somebody and he was the guy so that was the end of my career for the moment as a performing artist because then I decided I was going to find something else to do and Chess Records had offered me a job doing uh, publicity and A&R out of the New York office and they were going to pay me good money and give me an expense account and so that started in uh, early 1975 I moved to New York and I was still playing music and trying to figure out what I was going to do with that and Alex Children was calling me pretty frequently saying I, I want to get back into the music industry I I'm not making records here that are going anywhere that are getting released. Why don't you help me? So I I tried to help him with, with what he was doing, and nobody was interested in that. So then he said, why don't you come down and produce me? So at that point, my job with Chess Records was a little tenuous because they had moved out of their New York offices 
and I was working out of my apartment, which was very convenient for me because I could pretty much work whatever hours I wanted, and I was getting paid good money. I had an expense account, um, but then they wanted me to move to California, so they they uh, they had me come to California for, I believe it was about a week, and I was talking to Alex during that time, and then we, we basically formalized the idea for me to come down and produce him. So in October of 75, September or October, I forget. It was, it was, I think late September, might have been early October. I went down to Memphis and I produced Alex's uh, debut record, which uh, was fairly bold of me. And uh, I didn't consider it uh, any kind of success at the time because there were so many uh, factors that came into play once I got down there that made it very, uh, uh, it, was, it was a labored recording in, in a lot of respects. I mean, all, all recordings have a certain amount of labor, but um, Alex was not in great shape when I made that record, and it was um, sad to see him in that shape, and it was also, uh, it was tough to get, the kind of performances that I had hoped I would be able to get out of him because he was not very healthy. So that was, you know, it was a, a sort of a, a very strange experience. I don't know to what extent he he felt um, the, uh, you know, that he was as messed up as he was, but he had been in and out of the hospital a couple of times before that, uh, for quaaludes and stuff, and I think he knew that he had exhausted a lot of his opportunities in the music industry, and you know this might be his last shot that he'd get. So I think he was doing his best, but he just he had he had shot his wad to a certain extent, and you know doing melodic pop music, and he wanted to do something that was just uh, more outrageous and arrogant. And I, I wanted to do a record that was a little more musical, and it wasn't the easiest record in the world to make, but it's been released like half a dozen times, and people like it, and I listen to it, and I, I hear you know, some interesting things and things of beauty there, but I, it's also it's, it, was, it was a tough experience personally to, to see someone who you admired like that um, in that state. It's just, uh, you know, at age, I was 20 years old. You know, here's one of my idols, and he was, um, he was, he was in very tough shape. So anyway, that's, that was, that was my introduction to the music industry as a, as a musician, as a producer. But you also mentioned that it's, there's been continued interest in the project, and actually just a couple months ago, a Munster record act released a compilation of additional recordings and mixes from those same sessions. Well, the the one of the interesting things is that at that time, it was pretty apparent that any record I put out, the best thing I could do would be to make Alex sound as coherent and as appealing and as cheery as possible. Um, and now in re retrospect... You know, a lot of his following likes to hear the stuff that's darker and uh, grimmer and uh, edgier and and you know that that kind of music is now more in fashion. Whereas back then, it not only was it not in fashion, it wasn't even heard of. So now the record is in incredibly timely and and shows the you know the gestation of his art artistry as a, you know the link between the more cheerful pop stuff he did in big star and to extend in the box tops and the the more uh lou reed influenced um stuff he did later you know this is this shows where the jumping off point came and uh, it's 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 sort of uh, it's revelatory in a way that that something that at the time was seen as uh, 
such a a, a departure and something that could not possibly further his career has become you know such an integral part of his legacy and such a, an important record in his career yeah earlier you mentioned Andrew Oldham who previously had been the Rolling Stones manager how did you get to meet him and what some of the stuff you worked on with him Andrew moved to uh, Connecticut either 1969 or 1970. I think it's 1970. And there weren't a whole lot of other people involved in the Connecticut musical scene. So it was natural that our that we would meet. I, I actually uh, initially met him as a journalist to interview him. I was supposed to interview him for Rolling Stone magazine, but Uh, once I finished the article, they weren't very interested because they're not interested. And in he had had a feud with with uh, Jan Wenner that uh, neither one of them particularly got over. So the article was moot. But Andrew and I developed a friendship which has lasted to this day. We're still very uh, very friendly. Part of which is because we we rarely do business together because. Uh, um, I don't think that's that would be necessarily good for our friendship, but we do like a lot of music together, and I, I've uh, brought him uh, a couple of artistic projects. I got him involved in doing a, uh, a production of Big Star that never came out. He did a version of Maud Lang, went down to Memphis and produced them, and he and I were involved in uh, trying to get things happening for Van Duren initially, although he sort of uh, became less involved in that. And then I brought him a group called The Werewolves, which uh, I produced the demos to um, with him. And then some of them got used on the album and some of them not. And he had me play on a Rolling Stone session in 1975. That was my, my first session playing on, on a record. I walked into, he said, I was working at Chess Records at the time. He said, John, come over after work. I've got a little little something happening I think you might enjoy. He was at the uh, record plant. So I walk into the record plant, and it's uh, Andrew and uh, an artist he was working with, uh, Brett Smiley at the time. They were just hanging out. And I hear the Rolling Stones playing over the, uh, over the speakers. I said, Andrew, this is great. This is wonderful. He said, come on. He shows me to a, uh, a setup where they're congas. And uh, he takes my briefcase from me, and he sets it up. He mics my briefcase. He plays my briefcase. And I play my uh, I play the congas. And uh, there are two songs, uh, Jive and Sister Fanny and I'm Going Down. And that was my, my first recorded uh, uh, experience uh, in the music business. And that's pretty great. And yeah. those were overdubs for the Metamorphosis album. Yeah, the Metamorphosis record, yeah. you know, which was uh, out in later that year, 1975. Yeah. So it was a it was a big year for me. I, I had the the Metamorphosis record. I had a I played on a a Major Lance record when I was making the Alex Chilton record. Uh, I've got a right to cry, which is uh, um, actually I played on the B side. You keep me coming to me. You keep me coming to you, which is a Betty Crutcher song. And that also came out in 75. So I, here I was. I was in the music business. I had records out by Major Lance and the Rolling Stones. I was happening, baby. I had just finished producing Alex Chilton. I hadn't found the deal on it yet. But, you know, that would come. Yeah. And, and it was not necessarily work that you would get credited for either on the record release. Well, I, I, I was just happy to be working. You know, I didn't really think that anybody would, you know, You mean we get paid for doing this too? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then just a little later, you started a group called Pre, P-R-I-X. How did that project come about? Well, Pre was, I moved down to Memphis uh, after I did the Alex Chilton thing. I went back to New York, tried to sell the Alex Chilton record, and there were no takers. And then I went back to school for about a week. I went to Yale, back to Yale for a week, and I, that wasn't taken. And I said, I got to do something else. So I moved to Memphis. 
1976, and I stayed there for about six months. I was originally going to, I was in a group with uh, Van Duren, Chris Bell, um, Jody Stevens, and a guy named Mike Brignardello, and... Bass player, he lives in Nashville here. And uh, we were, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of gigs, but it was great talent in the band, it was great people. Um, but I felt pretty superfluous after a couple of gigs. And so I left to produce a guy named Tommy Hohen. And we, as we were doing the project, it was him and me and a guy named Chris Bell, who had been in this group and who also was in Big Star. And Chris was producing with me and Tommy was the artist. And then Tommy decided he wanted me to be the artist with him. So that became pre. And we never played a single gig. We played one showcase gig for Columbia Records um, later that year or early the next year. I'm not sure which. I can't remember dates. And uh, we managed to... uh, uh, We we had a a record deal with Mercury that was uh, on the second draft of the contract. And then somebody at the label decided that that was not a, uh, a good investment for them. So this was my second time striking out with Mercury. Then Columbia put us in the studio, and we did the one one night in the studio with them, and they offered us a deal, but it was contingent upon us doing one cover song, which I was fine with, and I called my singer, Tommy, to see what he thought, and he had split town already. He had a solo deal happening that uh, wasn't going to include me and that he would, you know, be able to control 100%. So I was left with these tapes that we had done together, and so I managed to find uh, a record label to put them out, which was amazing, and they also put out the Chilton stuff. So it was back on the boards, you know. Uh, you know, good project. Couldn't die in my hands. You know? Yeah, and there were some more... Uh, productions you did for Oracle Records too. Well, the only other one that I did that that came out was the McFerrin record, and that was uh, pretty wild. That was with uh, my old partner Doug Snyder on bass and rhythm guitar, and Mark Bell, otherwise known as Marky Ramone, on drums. And that was like a month before he joined the Ramones. Uh, he was getting phone calls from the Ramones as he was in the studio with us, telling him that he had he had gotten the gig. Uh, replacing Tommy, which is pretty wild at the time, feeling like you're you got a part of history happening. And Mick Farron was semi legendary, a pretty uh, incredible guy, and uh, just really drunk out of his gourd, and uh, thought the whole session was a complete disaster until he heard the results, and then he thought it was brilliant. And uh, he writes about it in his book, so I was I was happy that, you know, he was happy with the work. Yeah. So how did you move from there to the Yankees? Well, what happened was I had a um, a disagreement with the Orc Records people um, because uh, I thought I should be getting uh, paid for my work and. Uh, and I didn't like the fact that they were spelling my name wrong on the releases. And I just didn't, there was a guy working for them who I didn't really get along with. So I left to form a record company with a guy who was even worse. But that's the music business, you know. You, 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 a lot of people go through a succession of bad partners and, and uh, find out that they have to just do it alone and that was my my experience so the Yankees was part of the next the thing with this bad partner in Big Sound Records and uh, I pretty much figured I was through with being an artist after the Yankees because dealing with him really left a sour taste in my mouth aside from the fact that I'm much happier playing than singing but I, I got back to it later on with a good partner um, Steve Koenich so yeah, tell us a little bit though. Who were your partners in the Yankees? Because some of them later had to quite 
interesting career. Definitely. Oh yeah, well, um, the main record was done with myself and Mickey Curry, um, who's a fantastic drummer who plays with uh, Brian Adams now, and I just heard from him two days ago. And Paul Asola was the bass player on a lot of the tracks. He who has done a lot of sessions and uh, now lives here in Nashville. Guy named Ivan Julian, who is in Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and since has done other groups like I think the Fauntleroys and his own solo projects. There's a guy named Hilly Michaels who uh, had a solo career on Warner Brothers, and of course my wife Sally Tiven, who uh, married me after uh, after the record came out, I believe. Yeah, she's still credited as Sally Young on, on the record sleeve, yeah. so that must be right. Yeah. Uh, and you've been collaborating with Sally on a lot of your work, too. She's been a frequent co-writer and a bass player on many of your productions. How is it being able to not just share your life with, life with such a wonderful person, but being able to collaborate on a musical level, too? Well, it's really great because, you know, you you skip through a lot of steps that you ordinarily would have to go through with a person when you know them as well as uh, Sally and I know each other. So, you know, she she can listen to something that I, I get started and say, oh, I think you got this. I don't, you know, I don't want to work on this because you got it. And then sometimes she'll say, okay, I want to I want to play on that. So it's it's good and uh, you know it's nice to have peace in the peace in the home and everybody working. You know. Yeah, and you got a beautiful daughter out of it too, which is pretty. We got a beautiful great. daughter and and a great dog and uh, you know, pretty good life for uh, somebody who doesn't, you know, crave the limelight. All right. Well, moving on from the Yankees, there's a story I love, and it's kind of inter you know, interesting. This stuff like th that happens to a friend of mine, but it's it's always great to hear those stories. But how did you become John Belushi's guitar teacher? Okay, I gotta, I gotta tell about that entire day. I, I, the day that I was that I met John Belushi, was the day that I auditioned to be the guitar player in the Jim Carroll band, which was my favorite group in the world. I loved their whole album. People who died was just a great record, and they had just lost their two guitar players because their producer and manager Earl McGrath didn't want to give them points on the record, so they split. So I had, they had this vacancy, and somebody, uh, a bass-playing friend of mine, uh, Brian Stanley, who I had gotten the gig in the G.E. Smith band, um, said, you should check out the Jim Carroll band. They're looking for a guitar player. So I said, thank you very much, Brian, and I checked it out. I got called into audition, and... It was myself with their band. I don't think Jim was there until the very end, and there was another guitarist there to ostensibly play rhythm guitar while I played leads and stuff like that. The other guitarist was Ray Gomez, who is a mother of a guitar player, a great guy, great player, and by no means a rhythm guitar player. So it was a lot of... I was trying to play the rhythm guitar parts... And they were throwing new song ideas at me, and I was trying to flesh them out into full songs. So it was a great opportunity. So I aced the rehearsal. It was very easy. So I, I left the rehearsal with my guitar uh, on my back, walked to my gym, put my guitar in my locker, and put my bathing suit on, and went down to the jacuzzi, sat in the jacuzzi, closed my eyes, and when I opened my eyes... Across from me was sitting Farrah Fawcett. And I was just, I was like, this is my lucky day. Here I am. I just aced the audition with the Jim Carroll band. And, and Farrah Fawcett is sitting across from me. She's, she says to me, hey, how you doing? Like she knew me and she was as friendly as can be. I felt like, okay, the angels are with me today. That night, I took my wife to see uh, David Lindley play at the bottom line. And I'm sitting in my seat, and these two journalists, uh, Mitch Glazer and Timothy White, 
from Rolling Stone and Billboard come over to me and say, aren't you John Tiven from the Yankees? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I am. They said, oh, we love your record, and uh, why don't you come with us to uh, this party after the show? I said, uh, I'm not really a party guy, but what, what do you have in mind? Well, it's a party, a rap party for the film Neighbors with uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. I'm like, sure, I'm there. That sounds like fun. So we go to the blues bar, and... Mitch and Tim take me straight up to, to see John, and the party's just getting started. And John says, the, the guitar player's not here. Can you play guitar to me? I said, yeah, I, what, what do you need? He says, you know, a bunch of blues songs and some Chuck Berry stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got that. So I, I jump up on the stage. I'm introduced to the rest of the band, which is... Uh, the rhythm section for ZZ Top. So we start doing Jailhouse Rock and uh, Baby What You Want Me To Do and stuff like that. And we're wrong and I'm f- totally feeling out of my league, but I'm, I'm comping as best I can. And then Billy Gibbons shows up and I hand him the guitar. I said, man, this is your band. You take over. You know what to do with this thing. So, uh, and so I... I I was loving it, enjoyed watching it as much as I enjoyed playing it. And then afterwards, John came up to me and said, oh, I love the way you play guitar. Who do you play with? And I said, well, it looks like I'm going to be playing with the Jim Carroll Band. I just auditioned for them today. And he said, that's my favorite record of the year. I want you to teach me guitar. I said, okay, let's go. So... I started teaching John how to play guitar, and we became really good friends. And the last time I saw John Belushi was at the Lone Star Cafe. We played uh, a gig with uh, Peter Aykroyd's band, the Mini 14s, as the the backing band, and uh, we had a lovely time. And it was, I think, January '81. I think the the year he passed. That was that was it. It was around my birthday, which is January 3rd. Yeah. Well, and you ended up playing with the Jim Carroll Band for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about... Oh, I was in the Jim Carroll Band for a year, and it was a fantastic experience because I loved Jim Carroll, and I loved his music, and he was just a fantastic guy to be around and just brilliant. Um, I didn't get along quite so well. I didn't like not get along terribly, but everybody else in the band was like a, a smoker for starters, which was tough in the van because we were going on these, you know, seven, eight hour drives in a van and I was the only guy who didn't smoke cigarettes in the van. And then we get to the gig and we didn't have the similar lifestyles. I was a happily married guy and, uh, didn't really go for the big partying scene and they had a different uh, outlook on life and uh, there wasn't much socially uh, between me and the rest of the guys in the band except Jim. Jim and I got along tremendously. So I felt like I was the odd man out and then we did a big tour of Canada and all of a sudden this Canadian tour I was like fuck it I'm just going to go out there and rock like it's nobody's business and leave this thing uh, after the tour and just, you know, show them what, what I could do. So I did that. And at the last gig, uh, their manager, Earl McGrath, came up to me and said, John, you know, we really, you know, we've been riding your ass for six months, but... You know, we're, you know, we really, you know, so impressed with what you've done on this tour and stuff like that. I, I said, we'll talk about this when we get back to New York, okay? So when I got back to New York, I said, look, I can't continue in this situation. It's just not uh, furthering my, my, uh, my idea of what I should be doing with my life. So I left the band with no real uh, safety net, nothing else. I just I just didn't want to become a road rat. And in fact, like two weeks after that, they got into, the van got into an accident on the road and 
couple of guys got knocked up, and I was like, oh, well, I'm glad I dodged that bullet. Um, but I never really went out on the road again to that extent, though I was I was in a band with uh, Al Franken and Tom Davis, and we did some dates. They they weren't van dates. They were they were fly-ins, which is uh, much preferable. Yeah. yeah. And up to that point, you were mainly involved with, like, rock and roll type of music, but then you started transitioning to working with a lot of R&B, soul, and blues performers, and you were also asked to produce some tribute albums. How did all of that come about? Well, what happened was, the, the, the genesis was, um, I went to a party uh, at uh, Steve Jordan's house, and... I believe this was uh, 1985, 84, 85 around then, and I was, I I I ran into Don Covey, who I had met earlier in my time as a rock journalist because he was working for Mercury Records in A and R, and we caught up, and I told him I was, you know, I I since then I I had. Uh, since I left the Jim Carroll band, I had done some publishing deals with my songs and, you know, gotten a couple of people to cover my tunes and had some songs and some films and stuff like that. So that was, uh, was good for the head, good for the career. And I told Don that that was what I was up to. And he was very interested in getting together and writing because he had just, uh, he had been dealing with his wife's death and hadn't really been doing anything musical except for singing background on the Rolling Stones record Dirty Work and so we got together a couple of times a week every week for months putting together repertoire and getting songs together for him and for other people and eventually uh, eventually first we had a Almost got cut by Tina Turner, but then Huey Lewis cut uh, He Don't Know What to Do for You, which was a medium hit here, sizable hit elsewhere. And that really was, was great in another respect because then Chris Blackwell came in and wanted to do a record with uh, Don Covey. And we were involved in, in doing that. And Don introduced us to Bobby Womack, and things started moving towards uh, a career in rhythm and blues and blues, which was great. I got to produce B.B. King uh, through getting a song of mine recorded by Jeff Healy that did extremely well. And one thing was leading to another. I, I had an old friend named Mac Rice who I produced a record by, which should have done better than it did because it was a wonderful record and he's a great writer but it it only got to a certain level but one of the byproducts of me doing that record was he wanted me to send a copy of the record to his friend Wilson Pickett so I did that and a week later I got a call from Wilson Pickett saying I want to make a record with you which was one of the big breakthrough moments in my career to be able to make a record with one of the greatest singers of all time and really helm the project, write every song either with him or with friends of mine. And when it was time to, you know, take the bows for that record, it was very nice because I, I was, you know, it was just me and Wilson on that record, really, you know. So it was a fantastic experience, and I let everybody know what I was capable of doing. So that was. That was right. That was a momentous occasion. And how did you get asked to produce some tribute albums? You oh, the, did the tribute records several came. Several of those. That was an interesting story. I was, um, I was trying to get Arthur Alexander a record deal, and uh, I had brought him out of retirement, and we had uh, done a gig at the Bottom Line, written some songs together, and I had brought a couple of labels out to see Arthur one of which was uh, Shanakee. Shanakee were really taken with Arthur and really wanted to make a record with him in the worst way, but Electra outbid him, and Electra gave me the elbow and paid me $3,000 to go away and, and uh, made the record 
using all the songs that I had chosen for the record, all the musicians that I had chosen, but with a different producer. So I was a little bummed about that, but the Shanaki people really had great respect for the work that I had done, and they were trying to do a tribute record with Curtis Mayfield, but hadn't figured out a way to do it. And so they came to me and said, John, uh, we know you did that that one tribute record to Phil Spector, which I'd done back when I was working with Big Sound, uh, the Bionic Gold record. Um, would you be interested in doing a tribute record to Curtis Mayfield? And it just clicked for me how, how it should be done. And I said, well, yeah, sure. We'll get Steve Cropper and Paul Griffin. And uh, I know a couple of younger cats we can get in there as well. And then we'll get all the band tracks together, cut them in you know, two days, and then we'll get the singers in. And that was the closest anybody had come to them to to really giving them a plan on how to do the tribute record. So they got me together with Joe Ferry, who was the producer on the record, and we, they said, you know, can you guys work together? And I met Joe, and he was a lovely guy, and so we did the record together. And it did really well, and so... We said, can we do another? Because my friend Don Covey has just had a stroke and gone to the hospital. It would be nice to do a tribute to him. They said, we love Don and his song. So we did that record. And, you know, a fantastic cast of characters on that record with Robert Cray and Ron Wood, Bobby Womack, introducing the world to Ruthie Foster. It was, you know, a spectacular record. So that was good, and then, but Joe broke his leg in the middle of that record, and he wasn't really that engaged in the process. So when it came time to do the next record, they they figured, well, since you did the last record, pretty much, you know, most of it without Joe, do you want to, you know, would you be interested in in bringing in someone else to do the next record with the another tribute record with? I said, yeah, I'd like to do an Otis Blackwell tribute record, and I'd like to do it with. Um, Tony Visconti. I knew Tony through his wife, May Pang, at the time. Um, and we got along really well. So we did that record, which was, again, you know, uh, unbelievable cast of characters. Uh, Frank Black, this is the first time where I, I got to work with Frank Black from the Pixies, as well as uh, Graham Parker and Chrissy Hind and just uh, you know A to Z of uh, you know rock at the time you know rock people like you know Tom Verlaine and Debbie Harry is fantastic record so then I finished that and I I sort of felt like um, I had sort of uh, played my last hand at Shanakee because I the the Otis Blackwell record didn't do nearly as well as the Don Covey or the um, Curtis Mayfield, even though I thought it was every bit as good a record, even maybe better, but I think it was sort of outside of their their usual field of expertise, which is more in a jazz, uh, R&B, blues, groove audience. They didn't really know how to sell records to the rock audience. And I had done a reissue of my Alex Chilton record with a label called Razor and Tie so I figured I could approach them on a, on a tribute record so I approached them and we did the Arthur Alexander tribute record with uh, everyone from uh, Robert Plant and Roger McGuinn to uh, Mark Knopfler and uh, again I had some of my uh, favorites like uh, Graham Parker and I brought in Gary U.S. Bonds it was you know it's a wonderful series of records to have done. Absolutely. And one more you did as a tribute to Van Morrison. Would you mind sharing a few stories about that, too? All right. Well, um, I was approached in 2000. I think it was 2000. It might have been 1999. To uh, the people who had bought the Blacktop label, which was E-Music, wanted me to run Blacktop Records. I said, no, thank you. But if you want me to produce records for you, give me a production company. I'd be more than happy to produce a series of records for you. So they 
they said, sure, why don't you do seven records for us over a two-year period, and we'll give you thirty-five grand to make each record. I said, that sounds great. That's a wonderful way to, to spend the next two years. You know, I wasn't going to see that. Thirty-five grand included the budget for the record and the advance to the artist and stuff like that. But, you know, I would get, I think, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight grand for each record, which is really great, pretty wonderful. So uh, they first approached me about doing a tribute record to Johnny Taylor, who had recently passed. And I I love Johnny Taylor, but I just didn't think a tribute to Johnny Taylor would be that interesting a record. But I said, okay, I'd be happy to do that. Tell me, you know, you know how, who do I talk to? How do I get this started? They said, well... His best friend is this guy, Bobby Patterson. So why don't you talk to Bobby Patterson? And, uh, but give us a week to talk to the family. I said, fine. So a week later, I get the call from me music. They said, well, you know, that uh, Johnny Taylor record isn't going to happen because the family thinks it's too soon. I said, that's a shame. They said, but we still want you to do a tribute record. So is there anybody you want to do a tribute to? And I thought for about... 10 seconds, I said, why don't we do a, a record of R&B artists covering uh, Van Morrison songs? And they thought for about the same five seconds and said, that's a great idea. So I put together this all-star band, which was uh, Simon Kirk on drums, Henry Butler on keyboards, and my wife and myself uh, on guitar and bass. Paul Sola played bass on one track, played stand-up. And uh, we tracked the whole thing. I think it was, might have been three days, but it might have just been two. I can't remember. And then got everyone from Betty LeVette, who at that time was not particularly well known. She hadn't done any kind of comeback records yet. This is like a first release on a major label, label in 17 years, I think. And we had... Uh, Eddie Floyd and uh, Syl Johnson, just a great cast of, of characters. And the record, I was very, very happy with the record, but eMusic went through some business problems, so it didn't get to come out for another couple of years, but it was a wonderful record to be associated with. And Van and his, uh, his crew have enjoyed it immensely, from what I've told. Their favorite track was the Betty LeVette track. Yeah, and leading up to that, you also did two albums kind of under your own name. One is John Tevin e Ego Trip, and the other one is John Tevin Group. Yeah, yeah, I did, uh, I did those. Um, the first one, each of those records was done for a record label. Uh, the first one was done for, I believe, Buy or Die Records initially, and... Uh, as we got further and further into the record, they became more difficult to extract the funds necessary to continue the record. So I, at one point I said, well, what do you want to do? I can't get money out of you to finish the record. I can't make a record without a budget. And they said, well, do you want to be cut loose? I said, yeah. So they cut me loose, let me keep what they had paid for already. So I went to another label, Fountain Blue. Then the uh, when I went to make the second record, the second record was made for uh, like Lucky Seven Records. And then they did a similar thing right in the 11th hour. And so we ended up on um, New West Records. And none of the, neither one of those was. A, I mean, they were they were reasonably fun records to make, but I don't I don't like being the artist that much. I don't like being the center of gravity for a record. So I I don't have I don't have really wonderful memories of uh, the gigs associated with those were um, not 
as well attended as as one would like because we had no promotion from the label. The only really memorable gig was we played uh, Sylvia's in Harlem once, and that was a wonderful gig, um, but uh, we got shorted on the, the money by uh, our promoter, um, who was uh, the, this guy Sparky Martin. And uh, he, uh, you know, I was trying to pay everybody in the band a reasonable amount of money, and he came up, uh, he, I think he paid us half of what we were supposed to get. And so every time after I saw him, I was like, Sparky, you're looking so tall. And he looked at me, you know, like with wonder when I said that. And I kept saying, finally he said, why do you keep saying that I look so tall? I said, because that night in Sylvia's, you were very short. And uh, he, he first he sort of laughed and then he walked away. So that was my last dealings with Sparky Martin. Um and pretty much my last dealings with, with the group, per se, because uh, I'd rather work on other people's projects than work on my own. It's, it's you know, I'm not really uh, a live musician, and I don't, I don't live that lifestyle. I don't live for it. I enjoy playing when I get on a stage, but I don't enjoy the travel. I don't enjoy the, uh, the bad meals that are inevitably part of it. You know, I... I, I like it when I'm treated really well in a gig, as anybody like it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not a youngster anymore. I'm, I don't want to suffer for my music. I want to enjoy my life. Yeah, but I believe shortly after that, you met Alice Hooks, and you did half a dozen albums with him over, a, well, leading up to now. H how did that collaboration come about? Ellis, um bunch of friends of mine took me out to a gentleman's club on my I want to say my I forget which birthday it was but it was my birthday it was a momentous birthday and so this um, one of the girls came up and asked us for a dance and and she looked at me and my friends she said are you in the music business and we said yeah and she said, oh, I used to be in that business, but too sleazy. So uh, we thought that was pretty funny. And uh, she did a dance, and she asked if she could uh, play her music for us, for me. I said, sure. So I gave her my card, and she called me up, said, can I come over, uh, play my music? I said, sure. And so she came over and she brought her friend with her. I guess she didn't want to be in an apartment with a strange man who she had shown off her breasts to, and uh, who could blame her for that? So uh, she played me her music, and it wasn't really my kind of music. It was uh, it's just not, not my style at all. And then uh, I took a look at her friend and said, so what do you do? He, he says, uh, I sing. I said, oh, okay, what kind of music? And he grabs my guitar off the wall and starts singing. And I heard a voice that I really liked. And this was just as things were starting off with me for e-music. A couple months later, I I pulled in Ellis and I said, let's let's try to do something and make something happen. And so I I uh, got him a reasonable budget and uh, an advance, and we were off and running. We made it couple records for e-music um, unfortunately e-music went under before uh, we were able to really make the most of that situation but we uh, we managed to pull ourselves out of it and do well so that was great and Ellis is a, a wonderful artist and a really uh, a great guy and uh, I, I wish him the best with his, uh, his he's got a record out with Chris Bergson now that's really good so everybody should listen to that yeah And then 9-11 happened, which was one of the reasons why you decided to leave New York, if I'm right. So how did you set your eyes on Nashville, and how did that move happen? Well, I had to figure out where to move, because I, I wasn't uh, necessarily set on, on Nashville. So I called my friends, and uh, Marshall Crenshaw told me that I wasn't going to 
find much of a musical scene in Woodstock, so the, the Woodstock dream was over, and the weather was crappy. And then I called my friends in California, and I deduced that as I didn't drive, it was going to be a nightmare for me to move out there. And London didn't seem likely. So I called my friends in Nashville. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll be welcome to the musical community here, and it should be great. I'd made a couple of records in Nashville, and I liked it a lot. I never really thought about moving there when I visited. But when push came to shove, I decided, well, I know the weather's going to be at least a little bit warmer, and I've got some good friends there, and looks like I can get a really nice house in Nashville for about two-thirds of what I sell my apartment, my New York apartment for. So um, family and I packed our stuff up, and we moved down to Nashville and made a good life for us here. I've you know, grown to really enjoy it. Yeah, and I think around the same time you started working more with Frank Black, and you've done a handful of albums with him since. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, collaboration? Well, we had worked on some tribute records, and I had produced uh, uh, an EP by him, or a maxi single, whatever, to go with the Headache record. And we always got along really well, and he kept talking about wanting to make a record uh, called... uh, Black on Blonde, I think, was his original thing, because he wanted to do like a blonde on blonde type record, except, you know, basically using the Nashville Cats to interpret his songs in in a way that was different from what people were used to with the Pixies or his solo work. And I I said, you yeah, know, well, I, I know all the Cats, and it's a lot of fun to do. And... He called me and he said, look, I've got, uh, I'm going to do a Pixies reunion, um, but I want to do this record. So we did the Honeycomb record, and that was with, I mean, the greatest musicians. It was a wonderful assortment of, we had uh, Reggie Young and Steve Cropper, uh, and Buddy Miller on guitars. We had David Hood on bass, Spooner Oldham on keys. We had uh, Chester Thompson, his his son, uh, Emil, and uh, Billy Block, and Anton Fig on drums. Am I forgetting anybody? Uh, I think that's, that's, that's everybody. Oh, uh, and Jimmy uh, Griffin from Bread on backing vocals. It's just a wonderful time, just like five days of recording. And then, you know, a year later, maybe not even, he says, look, I've got a a gig in Nashville, and then I've got uh, a day layover before I have to be in Tampa. Can we do a record? I said, yeah. And I called Dan Penn to see if we can get back in his studio, and he said, I can't give you the time. I don't have the... I'm doing another project here. He's doing um, the Bobby Purify record. So I called my friend Cowboy Jack Clement. I said, "Um, I've got a crazy record I want to do in your studio. We're going to be in your studio for about 36 hours. We're going to do a whole album in 36 hours with a great assortment of musicians. You up for it? Jack said, count me in. So he lorded over the sessions, uh, cooking us... uh, refried donuts and uh, rolling joints and uh, LeVon Helm, Simon Kirk, Billy Block, uh, Bob Babin on bass, Ian McLagan and Mark Jordan on keyboards, uh, Buddy Miller, uh, Lyle Workman, Steve Cropper on guitars, uh, uh, Wayne Jackson on uh, trumpet, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but it was just an amazing marathon. Oh, Tom Peterson came in and played bass on one song. It's just a a marathon session where we did the entire record um, inside of uh, pretty much a day. They they played the show. The Pixies played the show in Nashville. We went straight over to the studio afterwards, started cutting, 
We cut for about six hours. Then I sent the first band home. I brought in another band. You know, whoever hadn't played on the first bunch of tracks came in. I tracked with them for six hours. They then sent them home to sleep and brought the first band back in. And then we did the whole thing all over again. And we got like a dozen songs with virtually all the instruments done, all pretty much live in the studio uh, over a course of a day. And then did some other recording sessions to make it into a double record. So, yeah, I've had a... And then we did a record with uh, Frank Black Francis, or Frank Black, whatever, and Reed Paley as a duo in my house with uh, David Hood and Spooner Oldham and a drummer or two. Uh, Harry Stinson played on a lot of it. Um in my house with basically did the whole record in, in my back room and that was uh, just a couple of years ago so yeah I've had a lot of a lot of Frank Black I've, I've done probably 20 records in my house since I moved to Nashville maybe 25 yeah and in between you also did a Steve Cropper album that was a tribute to the Fry Froyals that he did at Dan's Pants right. I did it also a Steve Cropper and Felix Cavalieri record in, in my house mostly um, for Concord Records. And what else? No. Lots I love of the Little Milton album. Little Milton. I did uh, Garnet Mims, Betty Harris. Um, the record I did with Billy Ray Martin in. Uh, 2000 or 1999 after just sitting on the shelf for whatever 16 17 years uh, she decided she wanted to finish it so that came out last year and went top 10 on the dance charts which was nice and now I'm making a record with handsome Dick Manitoba uh, of the dictators and also serious radio um, making a soul punk record yeah and uh, we're, we're getting to the end of this, but we cannot not talk about one of the most interesting in individuals I've ever met and one of your uh, most, I guess, probably most frequent collaborator in your whole career and uh, just a great, great, great guy on top of that. And I'm talking about uh, poet and lyricist Stephen Kalinich, who has before... Uh, collaborated with the Beach Boys, especially Brian and Dennis Wilson, and uh, and he wrote the lyrics to the Paul McCartney Brian Wilson duet, uh, "Friend Like You." Absolutely, and he did actually an album with Brian Wilson producing too that just came out recently. Although he was recorded in the late sixties, I believe. But uh, I believe you met him through. P.F. Sloan. Yeah, P.F. Sloan, whose record I produced in, I think, 2005, 2006. Um, he said, uh, would you be interested in writing with a friend of mine who's written with the, the Beach Boys and Brian a lot? Um, he's not as famous as Van Dyke Parks, but he's really great and really interesting character. I said, sure, what's his name? He said, Stephen Kalinich. I said, oh, the household name. And uh, he he laughed, and I said, okay, yeah, put us together. So we got to be friendly over the phone, and then we went, uh, he and P.F. Sloan and I all went to India together in 2006, and Stevie and I wrote our first song in India at the ashram of uh, Sai Baba in Put a Party. And then, uh, I guess a year or two later, he calls me and he says, uh, because I, I had sent him a demo of the song that I did. He says, you know, that song that we did, um, Everything's Exploding, uh, I want to put it on my record. I've got a record coming out. I said, great. Who's going to sing it? You know, because he, he always has, like, somebody associated with the Beach Boys, either their sons or uh, daughters or uh, David Marks did a couple, or Al Jardine. I figured he's... I was like, oh, great, he's going to get Al Jardine to sing the song. He says, no, I want you to sing it. I'm like, oh, into this again. Um, so I said, okay, um, what do you want me to do? He 
He said, send, send the tracks to Mark Lynette, and he'll mix it. Now, I felt really good about that because Mark Lynette is a genius. He's a really phenomenal audio engineer, mixer, everything. And so I, I sent the tracks, and I, I really liked what he did with them, basically turned them inside out. And so Stevie was really enthused by that and the reaction to that. So it turned into we made a whole record together as a duo I guess uh, 2011, and then we did another one uh, a couple years later, and we write all the time, and we have a new record coming out, I think in November of this year, Stevie's solo record, which has duets with Frank Black and Becca Bramlett, Dylan LeBlanc, um, Tara Holloway, and it's a wonderful record. It's called Scrambled Eggs. Right. Well, uh, let's leave it at that. I know you always have a lot of stuff uh, going on. I look forward to hearing the Handsome Dick album. I think you'll really enjoy it. We did uh, a version of Eve Destruction, which uh, P.F. Sloan wrote, and we, uh, we've we got uh, quite an assortment of... Uh, we've got uh, Shannon Pollard on drums, who's uh, Eddie Arnold's grandson. We've got uh, Buddy Miller and myself... Uh, on guitar and mando cello and pf sloan uh from the great beyond is playing harmonica uh acoustic guitar and backing vocals chuck mead singing on it it's a fantastic version really powerful so i think you'll like that a lot all right well thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing all these wonderful stories and i look forward to whatever lies ahead well, thanks for having me, and, and best of luck with the podcast. And I hope uh, all the people in the audience uh, just do everything they can to let their friends know about this because uh, it's a real good thing that he's doing. Andreas has made a, a wonderful career for himself here in Nashville as a uh, music creator and fan and aficionado, and uh, anything that, that helps that go further is a good thing. Thank you so much. This was the second episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Special thanks to Creative Workshop Recording Studio for hosting us today and Joe Funderburg for his technical assistance. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. <laughs>